This podcast is brought to you by On Track Studio. Good afternoon, Michelle. Good afternoon, Matthew. How are you today? I'm absolutely fantastic, and how are you? I'm absolutely fantastic as well. I've had a fabulous day, and I'm so excited to be here with you to uh, have another sesh, if you will, at our gorgeous little podcast. Yes. Have you been for a swim today? No, look, I haven't today. I had to work at the news agency, mm-hmm. um, and I opened up there. So I was there from 6.30am, uh, which I probably could have got. I think the pool's open at 5, but let's not shame me for not getting up at 5 and having a swim. No, look, don't, don't, don't. And of course, I came straight from the news agency here. But I had a swim yesterday and the day before and the day before and the day before. That's awesome. I gave you an opportunity to let us know just how busy you've been and how organised too. You've been on time all day. I, I'm, As you've pointed out to me recently, I'm very astute with time and I think it's important. But I would like to say that, yes, I'm busy, but I don't wear that as a badge. I like that. I like that a lot. No, I don't. I, I wouldn't say that you do. Um, there are so many that do, does though, Does time Michelle? exist? Uh, no, not for me, and it never has. So how do you manage it like that then? You just go, well, it doesn't exist, but I'm going to cut it up into little compartments, uh, little little neat chunks. Gina, I think about it in terms of where and how I choose to respect. Oh. So myself, other, you know, situations, places, how much respect do I want to give that person? That equates to the amount of time that I will be there, how much I want to be in a certain place. The respect that I have for that equates to when I will be there and when I will leave there. That's how I think about it, because I don't think when people are around me that it's necessarily about the time they give me, but instead the respect they give me. Hmm. That makes sense? Oh, it really does. Sounds a bit philosophical for your, for your Monday afternoon. Well, I quite like it. I quite like it. Let's, uh, let's have a chat about M. <sighs> Yes, sorry, everyone. I already went off on a tangent hard there, yes. But actually, this podcast is called... M&M. And that's because we dissect words. Mm. Dissect, should we use that word? I don't, I don't know. We, let's say it's a, a light-hearted look at language. A light-hearted through look Through an M-coloured lens. An M-coloured lens. We've already played with a few words and, and today we're going to play with a couple more. Mine is a little simpler today just to keep things a little lighter. But yours, Michelle, is a little bit more involved. It's right, exactly. So I think that yours might be only, what, three letters long, your word? Three, it's not the size in, of in the, the letter. Singular. Mm. <laughs> it's not the size of the letter, it's the thrust of the concept. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> at all what I'm talking about, really. That was great. I love it. Thrust it out there, three letters. Absolutely. But that being said, because mine is a three-lettered, simpler word, how about we start... With yours. Oh, why not? Good hospital pass. I love it. Can you tell me, Matthew, have you ever been hypnotised? No. So when I was a lot younger, I went to one of those hypnotist shows, if you will. Remember there was like, there were sort of comedians that yeah. used to do, you know, um, hypnotising. And get in touch with people that you know yep. on the other side, all that stuff. Oh, like cluck like chickens, basically. Bok, oh. Chicken bock. So what happened was I got pulled, There was I was in a room full of, oh, honestly can't remember how many, but a, a big room. And I got pulled up on stage with, four to five other people 
And he did the whole, you know, meditation, breathing, you know, attempt to sort of put us, lull us into the the hypnotic state. And unfortunately, I was unable to achieve that state. So I did my best, but I was very nervous being young and on the stage and I didn't, I wasn't able to achieve it. But he didn't know that because when he said, now bock like a chicken, I stood up and bocked. Because, well, I didn't want to let the team down. So are we saying that this is more um, like peer pressure was working rather than he actually hypnotised you? You felt, yes. you felt some pressure to bock like a chicken and so you went with the crowd. And I'm also a performer, so any opportunity, I'm there bocking. Did he come up to you and say, you know, Matthew, I've never seen a better bocker than you? No, I think he knew he was on to me. I think that'd be a great T-shirt too. I'm a better bocker. Mm. So that's my hypnotist. I like it. So the, the hypnotist who hypnotised you or didn't, um, did he touch any of you at all? Did he come close to you? Yes, uh, taps on the shoulder. Mm. Okay, so we can track that approach right back to a bloke who was Austrian, uh, Franz Anton Mesmer was his name. Mm. You know the word mesmerise? Mm. Yeah, so that comes directly from his name. And I'm very glad his name wasn't something like Guppa because then it would be Gupperise and that doesn't quite sound as good as Mesmerise. Did mesmerize. you say Guppa or Tupper? Guppa. Guppa. Guppa as in guppy. As in guppy fish. With a g. Mm. Not as nice as mm. No, mesmerise is a, it's a very onomatopoeia, isn't it? It sounds, it, it sounds, you know, spellish and witchish yeah. and like it's going to take you somewhere. So he is given the um, credit for being the father of hypnotism, but he called it mesmerising. And what he mm. did would, he would sit with you in front of you, he'd touch his knees to your knees and he'd do what was called passing he would pass his hands up and down your shoulders, right down to your fingers, so there'd be quite a bit of touching. And what he believed he was doing was transferring to you in great big bolts of fluid, actually, magnetism from his body. So he believed that there was a supernatural force called animal magnetism that links all of us across the world and all of us in a room and all of us to inanimate objects. Right. And he believed that he was able to harness this occult force and make you better if you were sick. And he needed to do that by putting you into this state that was close to sleep but wasn't sleep. Mm-hmm. So he was actually, he actually started really the trend of spiritualism getting up on stage and doing what you did. You know, mm-hmm. it's kind of a mix between entertainment and spiritualism. Yeah, absolutely. Now, he wasn't really making people better. He certainly believed that he was. And there was some evidence that people might have felt better. But there was a focus by him on fixing people who had what was assumed to be a psychosomatic sickness, so something that was in their head. Right. So not really all that scientifically based. A few years later or about 100 years later. Just a few. Yeah. Another bloke whose name escapes me came along and he decided that he was going to call this practice hypnotism and he was going to focus more on what the hypnotised person was experiencing rather than focusing on what the hypnotist was doing. Right. So it wasn't operative in his mind so much as receptive. Mm. So his idea was to make it to get you into a state that's close to sleep, hypnotize you, and then 
he would be able to suggest to you mm-hmm. solutions to things that might be bothering you. If okay. you're a smoker, for example, you might he might help you to stop smoking. Right. So hypnotism, the concept, the word, comes from the Greek god of sleep, hypnos. Right. He was the brother of the god of death and he was mothered by Nyx, N-Y-X, the goddess of night. Cool, cool name. I know, I like it. So hypnotism came after Mesmer and Mesmerize. Correct. And it sounds to me like Mesmer was the father of Reiki, like, you know, an energy kind of dude who used to tap into the great energy of the earth. Thank you. I knew you would pick up on this. You're absolutely right. So he called it either animal magnetism or fluidum. Yes, I've heard of this. Yes. So So the great great force that binds us all. Exactly. Mm. And I reckon... That that's the sort of thing that you tap into when you're doing tarot. Mm-hmm. I think it's the so- sort of thing that the people I was watching yesterday at the markets doing people's palms. I think that's mm. what they're tapping into. Yep, yep, yep. And yeah, it's the idea of everything being connected, and it's also the idea of bringing, I guess, spiritualism to the masses. So doing it on stage, or as you'll find at every market, pretty much that's worth its salt, you'll find someone reading palms. And or doing tarot, hypnotizing, or yeah. reiki, yeah. right? So it's all very connected. Mm. When and if we go to the root of the word, we go to hypnos, but we also go to somnus. So somnus is the Latin, and somnus is the Latin name for the for the um, what was a Greco-Roman god, really, the mm. god of sleep. And you know where he lived? He lived in a in a man cave that was grotty. Didn't most of the gods live in a cave? Well, chaos was chaos lived sort of all over the place and pretty much ran the show. <laughs> Dreadful, full on. That's my life. She's definitely in charge of my life. Um, but yeah, they sort of yeah, and they live underworld, underworld. Mm. Yeah, because I always just knew of these gods as kind of living at the bottom of the ocean, the top of the sky, or in a cave. That's it on the top of um, Olympus, and mm. they would play with the human world and. Make things difficult for us. I love that idea. Yeah, like we're a chessboard, huh? Yeah, exactly. Um, Michelle, when was was this? When was Mesmer? So Mesmer was born in 1734. He studied for his um, PhD in cosmology. Got that? Uh, By the time he was 30, married a rich By the time he was 30? Oh, yeah, he was pretty... um, He was an overachiever. He was, yeah, pretty accomplished. And he died in 1815. Pretty long life for back then. Yeah. That'd be, yeah. he's pushing 70. So maybe he did have animal magnetism slipping through his veins. Well, they probably didn't have the language back then to really talk about what we now talk about exactly, as you said, of this of this realm of, of the energy that binds us all, the Reiki and the spirituality. And he was probably just a founding father of someone who really felt connected and because when you talk about knee to knee and using his on, hands on shoulders and slipping down, this is very much Reiki practice. Yes. So, you know, connecting energy with other and then mm. seeing what that energy can, can formulate, how it interacts. Because, you know, we do have energetic fields. We have magnetic fields around the body that, are produ- that produce energy. This is what a lot of people call aura. And he was probably just tapping into that in, in that language that he had. Without a doubt, I think you're right. And the, the people that he was hanging out with were people like Mozart, so highly skilled, mm. really amazingly talented people who were giving to the world new entertainment and creating art that must have felt 
supernatural and yep. magic. Absolutely. Yeah. People who had incredible creative yeah. impulses and, and, and put together things that even what to this day, hundreds of years later, remain at the forefront of, you know, powerful art, art that has moved the world. That's it. And I think that there's something... To be said for the way that Mesmer made all of this stuff accessible and able to be talked about. Absolutely. Mm, interesting. Mm. That's very interesting. Mm, thanks. That's, I try to be interesting. I liked it, Michelle. Thanks so much, my Matthew. So much so, I have to say that it's led me into a Monday mood, Michelle. I just, I, I actually feel like maybe you transferred some of your magnetism to me then. <laughs> So what's your mood today, Matthew? My mood today is curiosity or curious. And I'm not going to go, this is just my mood, so I'll keep it succinct. I'm not going to go into the the meaning of the word, but I've found lately I've approached a lot of situations, Mm -hmm. people and, and places and times, and even sometimes by myself, with a curious nature. Meaning coming in without judgment, coming in without preconceived ideas or notions, coming in with a mind of not knowing which is curiosity. And I found that inside that curiosity, when you approach situations like that, there's a profound shift in your interaction with whatever it may be. So if it's you and me in a conversation, if it's me in a meal, if it's me and, you know, swimming, as we said before, it it actually changes the neurological pathways in your brain, understanding and perceiving what you're actually doing. I think a lot of times, and now I'm going to get, I'm going to make some sweeping generalizations, dear valued listener. I think a lot of times we go into situations with a kind of subconscious armory around what to expect, what what's going to be said, how we're going to have to behave, et cetera, et cetera. Is a word for that our bias? Is that what you mean? Yes, absolutely. And the unconscious bias is a very real thing. And it's natural as well in a way, isn't it? It's It's a summation of experiences and and knowledge. So Mm. it makes sense that we have unconscious bias. We can't actually help it, can we? We just need to be aware of it. But that's just it. If you are aware of it and Mm. you go into a situation not dissimilar to one night that you and I recently had in your humble abode Mm. and you remain open-minded, curious, non-judgmental, it really changes the energy, to, to put it in Mesmer words, changes the energy and can affect very quickly how the interaction happens in a much more, I believe, personally, positive way. Do you find that because you're leading in a communication style that is curious and therefore non-judgmental and open, do you find that the people with whom you're engaging learn from that? Do you feel that they, yes. they, they might shift the way that they're communicating with you as well? Possibly, Possibly. I I don't know the answer to that because I haven't actually sat down and asked anyone that Mm. question that I've had that real feeling with or about. But But I can tell you that the shared feeling of coming in aware of the unconscious bias and with more curiosity is a felt connection between the two people, which is, it's almost tangible. It, it, you know, body language changes verbal tones change, language changes, all the languages change, and it creates a deeper connection. Is it sort of disarming to start with? Do you find that people quickly, yes. more quickly take their barriers down to you yeah. from, from around themselves? Or I think, I think what you said before is really apt, that they respond with curiousness about my curiosity. They're Good. like, why is this man curious? I'm curious as to why he's curious. 
So, and I've really enjoyed that because I'm a 40-year-old man. I have a summation of, of biases and knowledge and, you know, I'm a collection of cells that have walked around and breathed for 40 years. So there's a lot of stuff I come to the table with already. And I've never enjoyed more these situations than coming at them with a set, a playful, I'd like to say playful because curiosity also to me connotes a very sort of scientific mm. um, view or, or standpoint. Well, indeed, it's the scientific method, isn't it, to always yes. be open to new information the, and when you've got new evidence, you must change your opinion. Right, yes. and so I want to put the word playful in front of it to Good. give it a little less sort of, um, you know, empirical mm. sort of side of it. Playful curiosity has led me to really enjoy and be a lot more present Mm. in the moments that occur right then and there, because you're not going down into your phylodex of summation of biases and pulling them out unconsciously and then reverberating or regurgitating them in that moment, which in a way is dissociating from that moment and not actually being fully present, not paying 100% attention because there's a part of you that's accessing deeper stuff and always at work. Well, while you're climbing down into your colon looking for stuff, you're not listening to the other person either. I you might come out covered in shit. I you? would have always thought it's more of a slippery slide in the colon than a climb down. It would be slippery. I like the idea that yours has a ladder, but I think mine's more of a water slide. I love the idea of my colon having a ladder in it. My <laughs> little bits of poo, I'm just climbing up here. Oh, well, it's, it's very, very hard. You've made it sound very clean. I'll climb down. Yeah, on the ladder everything's okay. It's yeah. only when you hit the walls. Me- meanwhile, I'm slipping down on the side, you know, girl it up around the walls, you know, having a good old time. <laughs> Have you seen Star Wars? No, oh, you know I don't watch nerd things. Oh, I need to introduce you to some of them though. There's oh. some, there's some, there's some, there's some room. There's some room. That's my Monday mood, please, I love Michelle. It. Thank it's, you for it's being curiosity. curious. Curiosity. And can go. I tell you, I'm glad you're not a cat. <laughs> I can, uh, I can tell you, I'm glad I'm not a cat too. And if you don't mind, Michelle, mm. I'm now going to segue into my word. Oh, go ahead. My little three, my little three alphabet word, which is map. Mm. Not nap, which I'd love to have today, but map, M-A-P. Okay, so a map is a diagrammatic representation of an area of land or sea showing physical features such as cities, roads, etc. Everyone, I think, that speaks English knows that. I didn't need to tell you, but I wanted to say the word diagrammatic. Oh, I do like diagrammatic. It took me a while to say it. Some of these words get me, and then when you say it wrong the first time, it's really difficult to undo that. Diagrammatic. I don't know if you've got any other examples of that. Yes, (laughs) um, the one that malevolent. Malevolent. Thank you. That took me ages. Malevolent. I still did it wrong. I know you did. Now, here's something interesting. Did Maps. you know that another re- another meaning, if you will, of map is a person's face? Oh, tell me more. I didn't know this. Apparently the expression... Have you got X marks the spot on your face somewhere? Well, the expression goes, you should know my map by now. You should know my map by now. My face. When Who says that? Is no. that a Kiwi saying or something? Well, I said it with a Kiwi accent. You did, actually. Yes. <laughs> you should know my map by now. I'm a brie. Fish and chips, chilli bin. Yes, of course. Um, Just go and get my jandles. I don't know why anyone would say that. But apparently that's another meaning of map. So that's interesting. Now, here's the thing. Here's where it gets interesting. I love maps. Mm, Do you? Are you able to follow them? Because I can't. I'm really good at it. I've always been great at direction, but I love maps. When I was a kid, my bedroom, which was covered in Madonna posters, unashamedly, literally wall-to-wall, ceiling-to-ceiling, you couldn't see any part of that room that wasn't Madonna. Was that contacted? Yeah, it was real. 
Um, except I did have an A2 sized map of the world, one of those real generic y, mm. you know, different coloured countryed. And I loved it. I used to spend hours staring at this map to see the shape of countries where countries met the water, wow. what, what the different continents look like. And Are I you don't know... at geography at school? Excellent at it. Mm. Don't know why. Uh, anthropology, geography, the study of cultures, uh, language. Archaeology. Not so much. It's digging. And I'm not a fan. Mm, unless you get jewels at the end of the digging, that's good. <laughs> There's not many of them left, though, I don't think. I don't know if there is. And pharaohs and stuff, yeah. We need to dig deeper. Yeah, maybe. But I've always been good at it. So I love maps. Tom and I, my husband at the moment, we've got a map at home, a felt map. Your husband at the moment. Are you going to get another one next week? That's not what I meant at all, Michelle. (laughs) That's hilarious. Sorry to pull you up on that. Keep going. Mm -hmm. We have a felt map that we put pins in of where we've travelled, which obviously pre-COVID was quite a few places Mm. and we've stalled a little bit now. And I love that. I love like seeing where on this globe as a, obviously a flat surface that we've traveled. I just love maps. How many, how many countries have you covered? That's a lot. Covered off. I think just, well, together or just me? How many with pins in them together? I'm going to say about 13. Wow. But for me alone, it's over 60. Over but, 60? Yes, but I was a travel agent. Let's. I ran a travel agency for 10 years, people, so I travelled a lot. You were always going to maybe end up in a, uh, a job like that, either that or maybe a cartographer. Would you ever like to draw maps? Are you interested no, in creating I'm them? not saying – that's why I said before I take – curious and I put playful in front of it. I'm not science enough. Mm. I don't have a mathematical brain enough. I just, I find it so interesting to look at. And then like you asked me before about time, is time real? And I I always used to look at maps and go, hmm, there's a border of a country to another, but who decided that? Well, only tectonic plate activity. Exactly. It's quite funny really, isn't it? And And war, war, of course. Yeah. You know, so let's talk about the different types of maps. Okay. Mm. We've got a topographic map. This is the one that you just mentioned and that I had on my wall. It's just a detailed, accurate and graphic representation of the features that appear on the Earth's surface. Have you heard, Michelle, of a Choropleth map? No, but you did well saying the word. I know. I had to do a slowed down. A choropleth map. (laughs) What is it, Matthew? Michelle, a choropleth map is a map that uses differences differences in shading, colouring or symbolic placement within a defined area to indicate values of quantity in those areas. So that sounded boring. Let me break it down for you. It's like if you had a map of the Pacific Ocean, for example, Mm -hmm. there would be different shaded colour areas of the ocean to show you the depth. Ah, it's like the Mariachi Trench, is that what it's called? The Mariana. Mariana. Did you say the Mariachi Church, <laughs> yes. which is the Mexican I, band I that comes in and goes da 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 da. Given it a little canestas, canestas. It stuck some fruit on its head. Just for that, I think I might make one of your words, Micronesia, soon. Yeah, so it uses symbols like you might have a map of Everest and yep. they would use different symbols on this map to show you where you're at in altitude. Oh, okay. So super interesting. I didn't know about that. It's a choropleth map. And then if we're talking volume, would we also maybe then be talking floodplain mapping? Is that yes. choropleth? Okay. Any Anything that has more than just the shape and the border, like anything where you need to show, I guess, volume. Hmm. 
you know, depth or height mm. or anything like that, it would it would be included. Okay. A political map, Michelle, mm-hmm. shows the boundaries of city, states and countries, borders as well as major locations and capital cities. So a political map is probably in the current world the most valued map. Probably the most contested too. Absolutely the most contested. Snap question. Do you know uh, the country at the moment and the political map of the world disagrees with the borders and all the information that I've just said for, of a political map? Which country do you think has the most, like, arms crossed? nah China. It's correct. Do you know how many countries China shares a border with? Oh, gee. But is it five? Thirteen. 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 So you can imagine that there's a lot of issue surrounding where they think their borders start and end. And not to get too political on you right now, devalued listener, but, you know, shit's getting real with Taiwan. They've kind of taken back Hong Kong. Yeah. And they're building new, well, they're reclaiming land in the middle of the ocean. Yeah. So that's a political map, but we won't go too deep into that because we may not ever get out of it. A mind map, Michelle. If you want something diagrammatic, you go with a mind map, don't you? You go with a mind map. A mind map is a diagram in which information is represented visually. Mm-hmm. Usually a central idea placed in the middle with associated ideas sprouting out around it. So this is much more imaginative and used by people who are seeking to extrapolate on that main idea. I use these all the time. And they're brainstorming, but we're not allowed to use that term anymore, are we? That's right. What do you call it now? Mm. Workshopping? Workshopping in your head? <laughs> <laughs> I Sorry, I can't talk. I'm workshopping in my head. I at think the it's moment. called meta awareness. <gasps> oh, okay. Then we have a roadmap, mm-hmm. like the Brisways, the Melways, and the Sidways. Oh, love myself for Melways. Or Google Maps. That's not, we don't know. Really, have a Sidways anymore. We have a Google Maps. Mm, mm. And lastly, and most importantly, the map of Tassie. The map of Tassie. The uh, the shape and definition of a female pubis. I. Uh, I can't believe this is where you've taken it. So um, are we also then going to talk about Mergens? Absolutely, because... And man, oh, no, landscaping or ladyscaping? Ladyscaping, trimming the hedges, <laughs> uh, whippersnippering the bush, all of that. Getting out the secateurs. Getting out the secateurs. Mergens are great because... don't Brazilians some, are great. Sometimes. Doesn't your Munyana want to be a blonde? Yeah. I mean, exactly. That there are, maybe you're wearing a wig on your head and you just want to, what is it? The, the, something matches the curtains. I can never get this right. The carpets. The carpet match matches the, the curtains. Oh, there you go. I can't even get that right. Mich- I like it. Michelle, the very first maps go back as far as the 5th and 6th century before Christ and they were based on the flat earth paradigm. So people a really long time ago started making maps. And they thought that, that where they can't see anymore was just, Nothing. They, well, everyone originally off. thought the horizon was the end, mm. which you can't blame them. No, it's very human, isn't it? Very isolationist. We are the only ones here and the rest of it is dragons. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> off the edge of the world and they shall eat you. I love that. You can but fall I'm, into fire. I'm so glad we weren't around then because that oh. just, imagine every day you'd look up and go, look at that edge. Man, I would have been burnt as a witch and <laughs> or, or, or they would have tried to drown me and be like, oh, come on. Can swim. She is a witch. No, they wouldn't have. We would have been married and had 1,600 children. <laughs> American Gothic style. Now, did you know? Well, can I wear a bonnet? I'm going to wrap up on this one. <laughs> the international flag. I really want to wear a can bonnet. Can we both wear a bonnet? So 
I'd like to wear a bonnet too. Oh, if we've taken it there. Mm-hmm. We've taken it there. Let's go, Amish. International Flat Earth Research Society. Now, this hold was. Hold on, hold on. Isn't the word international at odds with the flat earth part of their name? Oh, man. Some of the stuff <laughs> I read was glorious. One of the things they put on Twitter said, there are many believers in the Flat Earth Society around the globe. <laughs> Just, no. I'm serious. And someone that must be a joke, surely. Someone commented and went, read that again slowly. <laughs> and edit, edit, edit. The International Flat Earth Research Society, Michelle, was created in 1956. And, oh, that's Yeah, and the members we believed. planes then. Yeah. Absolutely. And the members believe that the Earth is a flat disk centred at the North Pole and bounded along the southern edge by a wall of ice, also known as Antarctica. What is it spinning on? What, because what, It's spinning on the North Pole. It's like <laughs> situated on top like of... Like a top. Like, you know, when you go you to the circus off, and you? there was a man that did jungling and there was a man that did the plates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. him spinning the wow. plate. Now, the group was founded in 1956 by Roger Who Knows. And he passed away in 1970 yeah. and the Flat Earth Society died off in 1970. It fell apart. It was only about Rog, really, wasn't it? <laughs> Rog was Rog was pretty much the only fucking person holding on to that idea. One year later it fell apart. But wait for this, goodness. Michelle. It was officially resurrected no. as a society in 2009. <laughs> With a new website featuring many <laughs> images uh, of the flat earth and fact sheets for days. And fact most sh- importantly, Michelle, the group currently has globally 500 members. Oh, it's a big concern then. 500 members of the 7.9 billion population. But it, is each of the 500 people believing that the flat earth finishes where they cannot see anymore and therefore isn't at complete odds no. having membership? No, like so they, they, they... Are they all on the same continent? They No, no, no. They suppose that the continents exist and the oceans exist, but at different parts of this flat earth, and they understand, like, they're not suggesting that every horizon is the end of, but they absolutely maintain that we live on a flat, flat earth. Do they, do, have they explored at all the idea that we've been left out, that the rest of the universe that we're working within is a whole heap of round planets, round, <laughs> spherical, and and that we are the disc. Why, have they got any explanation for this? I think, I think ultimately whether or not they are choosing to look at science for what it is, I think from what I could glean, now I'm not going to lie. They've got alternative I facts. looked at Roger Who Cares' website for 10 <laughs> seconds and I had to run screaming from the room because it was just so wrong and offensive, but... It seems to be that they're conspiracy theorists. Right, so okay, so they're less, prepping as well. Yeah, it's less about the truth and it's more that we weren't told the truth, we've never been told the truth, everyone's lying to us, science is a lie, you know, batten down the hatches and keep your guns ready. Right, okay, get our ammunition and get that bunker set up with the baked beans. Now, Michelle, that's mm. my word done for you, Look, Mep. I love it, thanks, Mep. Mep. It's, uh, that's been fascinating, Matthew, thank you. And on that note... Oh, what's making me moist? I, it's a question I often wonder. Oh, well, every day you think, just it just pops into your head at four o'clock in the afternoon while you've got a coffee in your hand. I wonder what's making Michelle moist I right now. I wonder what it is right now, but what is making you moist or perhaps dry? 
No, look, I'm, I'm nice and nice and moist today. I'm not going to go into any more detail about the volume of moistness because it's really disgusting. So I'm, I'm moisting all over Dickens today. Charles Dickens, the reason that I'm moist about him is that I freaking love the way that he puts words together and there is almost no better comment on the human condition than Great Expectations. Yes. I think that Mrs Havisham is one of the best characters ever written. Why? Because she speaks to regret. There is in the human condition nothing worse than regret, than wishing things were different and believing that one day things might be different, always right. striving for the thing that we're never going to get and also wishing that we were that we did things differently in the past and the idea of I guess infecting young people with cynicism and and the effects of old age and the effects of disappointed goals. I think too that the the the, the, the big reveal in that book is so amazing as well. The fact mm. that you know that you think that Pip's being looked after by one and it's actually by another. I just I think that he was an absolute genius, but also. We get a historical account in Dickens' writing of what it was like to live in his time and the fact that Oliver Twist was, a, was an instrumental part of having laws changed so that children weren't sent into hard labour anymore. It's pretty exciting. Yeah. And, and one of my favourite, favourite lines ever, what's, ever. What's your, one of your favourite, favourite lines ever, Michelle? Please, sir, can I have some more? Why is that your favourite? Because of what it represents? Oh, it makes me so sad. Every time Every time I read it, I have a little tear in my eye. The concept of children being forced to work hard, the concept of children being ripped from their families and the concept of children being dirty and cold all the time. I had cold knees as a kid because I grew up in Melbourne. I hated having cold knees. Cold knees? Yeah, always. My knees were cold. I had to wear, oh, my mum. She, she put me in... Ridiculous outfits, mostly mostly overalls, mostly purple, and, <laughs> and I wore tights underneath. And yet, my feet and my knees were always cold. It's interesting that you go to your knees being cold. Oh, cold knees, cold knees, and the feeling that you're never ever ever going to get warm. And I, that 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 permeates so much of Dickens' writing because these people are at the absolute limit of. Um, of poverty and of driving, and they're cold all the time mm. and they're dirty all the time. Have you picked up a Dickens recently? Is there a reason why this is making you moist at the moment? No, I've just been thinking a lot about the time that we're living in now and the fact that we should probably be chronicling what we're going through because it's historic and I'm not going to use the word unprecedented because, you know, <laughs> there's been plenty of terrible pandemics. Um but I think that it's important to get a record of the way that people live and what Dickens does is mm, give us that. Yep. He gives us that in art. So we don't have to go and read a textbook like what you're saying, anti-science, you know, that put playful in front of it. I love the fact that I can get a, 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 a really deep access into the past mm. and really into, into our heritage, you know. I mean, we're from Europe. And so I feel a sad disconnection when I read Dickens because I think I think some of this is about me. I think this goes to my identity mm. and I know nothing about it. Mm. I'm not connected with it. We're all 
we think of Australia, well, I think of Australia as a mess, you know, a hot mess, really, a place where the truth is never told and where we don't, we're not allowed to take on an identity that includes and embraces the European because we feel such shame about what mm. what we did, you know. Mm. That goes really deep, doesn't it? Yeah, so, yes, wow. That's what I've been thinking on, and I think Dickens is a great great oh, point. I agree. I think that's a really good thing to be moist about. I you've, re, you've reinvigorated me to go and you know revisit yeah. some of his work. Mm. I think just don't get the complete works because it's a real pain a holding a day. great big book. It's a big day. Yeah, I like I like them small and you know. Well, thank you, Michelle. Bit of penguin. I really appreciate that moist moment. You're welcome. And, uh, valued listener, that's pretty much us for the moment. We might go and have uh, Smoko and then uh, a cup of cocoa and see you on the flip. <laughs> <laughs>